Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey, welcome back to How I Got Greenlit, a weekly podcast about pursuing your passions, both in the creative arts and beyond. I'm Ryan Gibson, along with my other host. <laughs> Is that what I am now? We other are host? together hosts. I'm Alex Collegian. Today, we've got part two of our conversation with advertising guru and brand anthropologist Richard Wise, author of Save Your Soul, Work in Advertising, A Cheeky Proposal from America's Most Condemned Ad Man. Richard brought his B-side today, which we will get to, is Eric Romer's 1962 film, Sign of the Lion. Thanks for joining us. It's undeniable that advertising um, supports the arts, okay? <clears throat> uh, we've already said a lot of filmmakers get their start there. A lot of, you know, more indie filmmakers continue to make choices uh, for their art based on the money that advertising allows them to survive with, right? They don't have to make movies that they don't believe in because they can do commercials and there's a separation of church and state. But, it, you know, what would you speak to the, the wagging fingers of our society that say, well, um, you know, you're so smart, Richard, you should be teaching philosophy at uh, a school or you should be you know, writing treatises, da, 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 da. Why are you supporting, you know, this sort of, um, uh, garbage cult, whatever, you know, using the word culture, but what I, we know the positives, but is there a world where it doesn't exist? I mean, look at Netflix. They are like, we're not going to do advertising. And then, you know, not even 10 years later from the beginning of their subscription model, they're like, yeah, we got to do advertising. Like, it seems like our culture is inextricably linked with marketing. Um, is that good? Is that bad? Or is that just ever thus? I mean, I, I, I think of the advertising I saw in the walls at Pompeii. You know, it's been around a long time. Yeah, for, for sure. I, um, uh, I mean, um, So like, is it, it is it the symptom of capitalism? Does it perpetuate capital? I don't mean to ask you the big questions, but <laughs> you know. Well, but I, I, but it's almost, it's in other cultures. Almost everything that is driven the the internet uh, 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 until is ad based. Yeah, Google it, Google considers itself an advertising. Uh, of course, of course, think it is. about and face, that. And Facebook is an ad agency. And Facebook uh, also. Yeah, yes. they're, they're they're advertising platform. The entire the entire history of the internet is focused on one question, which is how do we sell ads? Uh, I, I recently saw a really interesting thought piece by Harari, the author of Sapiens, um, one of the great storytellers of our time. And he said, yeah. he said, okay, so that's been interesting and, and many, th many interesting things have come out of it. But what if we said, okay, the next chapter is the entirety of the internet and all of its apps and all of its platforms is going to be focused on helping us understand the pervasive influence of political corruption. Imagine if all of these people that, that, that did Facebook and, and Google and, and the whole thing, imagine if it was all about shining a light on where corruption exists. 
so that we'd have a we'd have the opportunity to bring about reform. And so that, that's that's fantastic. And that's like that's well, there. There's some food for thought for you. Um, and there's a lot of things that I mean, when when the Netflix, God bless them, they ran the, the documentary, The Social Dilemma. And it, and it revealed yeah. it was Tristan Harris was behind, behind that. And he's he has founded uh, an institute for the main use of technology where the idea is that it's going to provide training for people who want to approach how we use the internet with an entirely different new paradigm. And the paradigm isn't, the paradigm is about how do we, how, how, how do we build social ties rather than divisive ones? Um, how do we, how do we, how do we foster empathy rather than hatred? How do we create opportunity for more people everywhere rather than haves and have nots? So a, a few, a, a set of a few paradigms that when I, when I first heard Tristan Harris describe them, I was greatly moved by it. And anybody I know who wants to go into this, this general field of entertainment and digital marketing and advertising, I would say to them, you know, if you, if you can, if you can spare the time for it, take a few weeks and do that training and see where it might take you. And there's probably going to be a whole new chapter that comes where there's a much more focus on, on purposeful good that comes about through what you do. But to, to do that well, you're going to have to be, you're going to have to learn the art of persuasion still. Well, let's just say the book again. It's, yeah, it's, I would want to plug the book because yeah, I, I, the, our, if anyone in the audience is listening and just enjoying the conversation with Richard, um, just can you can you go through the book for us? I have it in front of me, but I think it's better from the author. So, well, let's give um, it again. It's called "Save yeah, Your Soul." Save Your Soul: Work in Advertising by Richard Wise, and the subtitle is "A Cheeky Proposal from America's Most Condemned Ad Man." And so, that's I, I'm not. Advertising legend Richard Wise, I'm America's most condemned ad man because at the time, <laughs> at, at the time, at the time at which Infamous. I, the time at which I met you, um, the thing yeah. I got sucked into working on that I found really, really interesting. So I remember the first time sucked I in. Saw, that's funny. Inhaled, uh, yeah. if you will, <laughs> if you will. The at, at, at the time, um, uh, there was an ad campaign in the states that started with the uh, the seventy the seventy fifth anniversary of Camel cigarettes, in which uh, the camel uh, became uh, came to life and poked his head through the pack of cigarettes and kind of looked at you like here I am, and and the the and it was just for the seventy five years of Camel, and it was there was just something odd and strange about it, and then he began to appear in advertising, and he would be like. You know, driving a sports car or playing pool, and he had a good life. He did, and I remember when I first he, saw he was, that he was a rock star. My he, uh, quite. I remember when I first saw that. My reaction it reminded me of the first time I ever read Head Comics, Fritz the Cat, R. Crumb. It had this kind of like mm-hmm. highly graphic, sleazy, interesting quality to it. And, uh, and so I, I ended up working with, uh, the agency that was behind that. And I, the, when I, when I interviewed the creative director there, I said, what do you guys do here? And he said, we don't do advertising. We do pop culture one matchbook at a time. 
And I thought that was really, really interesting that that was like everything I had been trained to do at the Sorbonne. <laughs> and so I got involved with that. And then um, this incredibly moral figure in American history named William Jefferson Clinton decided to go after Joe Camel and condemn it on public television as corrupting our nation's youth. Um, and uh, he, you know, he later this was before to- he got... Um- before he was accused of corrupting our nation's youth with tobacco products, um, but uh, if you read the, if you read the Star Report, I'm not going to get into any more tawdry detail than that. But um, the so I, I I kind of realized afterwards I I can't think of anybody who's done an ad campaign that was literally denounced by the president of the United States of America. So if I have a claim to fame, it's not that I'm a legend; it's that I'm the most condemned man I know in advertising. Um, and, uh, and by no, by it's good to have haters. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so just think about all the ads that you've seen throughout your life and they don't have to just be from car dealerships, right. Or from monster truck events. Um, there's a lot of work out there that everybody's so happy with what they've done because they got your attention, right. But there's no grace. You know, it's that that comes from that comes from arrogance, arrogance, and the, and then there's the other side of it, which is fear. And there's a lot of ads where it's just kind of like, um, wouldn't it be great if we were all happy? Yes, that's how you feel with our insurance program. I don't, you, you guys, you, uh, seriously, like, there's a really great example of that, which is to look at the ads for Aflac. American family. Yes, you talk about it in the book. Yeah, so good. Those are like those are those are like you you can find them on the internet. Aflac before the duck, and you watch this commercial, which could have been made by somebody who's an aspiring film director, quite possibly. It's beautiful, gorgeous, fantastic stuff. Who's the guy that made Saint Elmo's Fire and then did just like one one commercial success after another? They were all. You're talking about Joel Schumacher, the director? Mr. Schumacher. Yeah, it might have been. Yes. Yeah. It, it looks like an ad made by Mr. Schumacher. And it's it's all gorgeous and wonderful, by the way. It, I did work with Mr. Schumacher at one point. He's a really great guy. God, God rest his soul. But anyway, uh, it looks like that. It's like polished, licked, beautiful, touches all your heartstrings. And it's instantly forgettable because it's just pleasant. It's just pleasant, <laughs> but, but, but bland. And yeah, what happened next on it was um, they they you know they ran ads like that for ten years, and nobody could even remember the company, much less what it was that they sold. Um, and a you know a desperate client asked you know took desperate measures and asked for out there much more interesting creative, and there was a copywriter you know. Um, racking his brain going like he just couldn't get out of his mind that like Affleck you can't remember and it sounds like a duck quacking so he literally made an ad with a duck quacking and the thing about it is if you take that to a really large sales-based organization that sells insurance they're all going to go like that's that's it's going to be the same reaction as the Texas Department of Transportation you know, they're just going to go like that's that's that, that's appalling that's horrific you're taking this great and noble organization and you're having it be that's horrible. Um, but guess what? They were funny. 
and they and they and they and they got the message across. But they're yeah, sticky. They are. They are. They're, they're as sticky as plop plop fizz fizz. Aflac. <laughs> like it's just it's 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 in there. That's it's right. It's in there. That's right. Uh, it's in in, fact, by Menon. <laughs> I'm a little bit worried about that one. <laughs> by Menon, because it it, <laughs> it 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 does sort of like put the brand name in your mind, but not much else. You know, no, but it it's just, I, I'm not even carry. talking about like the messaging. It's just, <laughs> I, it's, I, yeah. I, I realized how many, um, seventies and eighties theme song words I know, like second and third verses of, and how many, uh, ad, I mean, this is a uniquely Gen X problem, right? Because the baby boom were living their lives. Like, you know, <clears throat> three's company was on the air, but they were out at the real regal beagle trying to like hook up. Like we were just watching their shitty pop culture and, and like just absorbing it in the same, you know, cadence as kids watch TikTok. So parents out there when you're like, I can't get this kid off the fucking phone. It's like, okay. And then you went home and you opened with your latch key and you watched TV for four or five hours before mom and dad got home. So you know, there, there's an interesting, uh, what's the, what's the word? It's, it's like a hit song, uh, an ear worm, I believe they call it. Mm -hmm. Um, like, uh, they've actually tried to, uh, you know, I dabble in music and whatever. And so my buddy sent me this article of a digital, um, a study of hit songs. Like what are the key components to make an earwig or an earworm. I can't remember the the term, but it's it's all in the same vein of basically what we're doing or what we're attempting to do as any sort of narrative peddlers, let's call it. I can't think of a more far-reaching name, but a, a song <clears throat> is a narrative, an ad is a narrative, <clears throat> um, is stickiness, right? Is that <clears throat> you, you, you uh, an unresolved itch and, 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 that's why the Schumacher slick stuff fits in with we're insurers, we want to be conservative, we want to be tasteful, mm -hmm. but that's not effective is the way that, say, Tarantino films stick in your head because they are lurid and they are sort of trash culture elevated as opposed to you know, what I call broccoli movies, which are good for you, that you forget that, you know, maybe they win best whatever, but you forget them 10 minutes later. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, what's interesting about, I mean, talk about, since you are traveling the world and, and, and you're almost like a Joseph Campbell kind of character, right? Because you're, you're studying different cultures and then I'm assuming you're finding commonalities within, right. And, and how it seems like the, like the, the idea of narrative with a capital N really rang home to me when someone used it. I believe it was Turd Blossom himself, Carl Rove, who said, you know, the most compelling thing about, about George W. Bush as a candidate is his narrative, right? Mm -hmm. He is a flawed, fail son, drunk, cocaine user, uh, failure, but uh, he rose up through the power of Christ, through the you know, family love, whatever, whatever, his internal combustion. He is now here to, uh, you know, take, take us into the promised land because he is us. He is failed. He is human, but he doesn't give up, 
right? And that was the narrative that he was an every man who somehow found it within himself to rise above his own sort of shortcomings, right? That was the narrative that was compelling in presidential campaigns are narratives, right? And mm -hmm. Trump's narrative was, was hammered home for most people at that first debate when it was, you know, the Confederacy of Dunces. And he looked around, and he goes, you know, everybody on this panel has asked me for money for their campaigns before. And it was like, whoa, you know, and he was peeling back the veil. So do you, I mean, obviously we, we, we can't discount the power of narrative, but it, you know, you, you, we talked about your sobriety and I don't want to dig into that unless you want to, because I find it to be a very inspiring story, but um, also your, uh, the intertwining of that uh, you know, rise again, let's say Phoenix moment with your embrace of the Catholic church and faith. So, which is again, the original narrative, right? Um, and I think kind of what you were saying was, is that things exist in our collective unconscious and effective leaders, effective uh, narrative peddlers, they don't, create entirely new things. They take the things that are existing in all of us or common among us, and they sort of either specify it or they guide it that 10% nudge left or right. Now that could be a public speaker, a la Hitler, whatever. Uh, and I'm speaking to him st strictly on uh, narrative effectiveness, not right. on content. Yeah. But you know, the reason he rose to prominence was because he took the existing German narratives that had existed for thousands of years and he updated them for his own nefarious uh, uses, right? Mm -hmm. So um, is that the common thread? Is narrative what defines humanity from, from your perspective? Is that what binds us together? Mm. Um, well, the, the thing... Um uh, in, in the case of Hitler, um, he, he, he inherited, uh, the after effects of the Treaty of Versailles, uh, in which the winners of World War I decided to humiliate and punish the loser, Germany. By the um, way, watch the new version of All Quiet on the Western Front for a dramatization of that moment. It's really quite effective. Yeah, it, it was Keep a, going. It was a the, the new it, one on Netflix that's out. It was yeah, a disgraceful way to to end a war, which contrasts sharply. And they learned from it in the case of World War II, the Marshall Plan, which um, you know at, 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 at the end of the war, uh, yeah, America had. You don't humiliate the defeated. No, you try to you help. You try to help them. Help them. You, help them you empower them. Yeah, yeah, you try to help them reconstruct yeah. and. So the uh, uh, he inherited uh, a wounded and outraged and humiliated country, and he incarnated their anger. So what 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 Hitler was extremely good at was um, talking, uh, making everyone into a victim and an outraged victim, and channeling their anger. And I think the the thing to learn from that anthropologically is always beware of institutions and individuals who appeal to your sense of outrage. 
um, mm-hmm. and be very wary of yourself when you're driven by resentment and outrage and feeling of superiority over your adversary and try to try to step away from that as much as possible because it gives it gives rise to destructive forces which build momentum in the individual psyche and in 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 groupthink as well um, one of the reasons that I'm uh, attracted to the figure of the crucified Jesus um, in uh, as an anthropologist is because it is a um, it, 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 it's it's an it's an it's an artistic statement. Uh, I'm quoting Oscar Wilde here in his prison memoir, uh, De Profondis, where he said, uh, no other artist, I'm not sure he believed in God at the time that he wrote that. He wasn't trying to be a missionary for the Catholic Church. He was a broken man in reading jail, um, reading jail, excuse me, and, and, and trying to make sense out of this tremendous amount of suffering he was going through. And he found in that in that in that person he found what he believed to be an artist who had worked with everyday suffering he made he made pain and suffering into his into his into his canvas and he created an image which the world cannot forget and the image says this is what we this is how we think we make the world a better place by by killing other people or even by alienating them, by ostracizing them. We think we make the world a better place. And we are in fact just, we are, we have become as evil as the evil that we think we are fighting. And nothing, nothing is accomplished by killing someone. That's, I think, what that, that's what I see in, in that message. So I see it as this like profound, violation of the uh, entitlement that we feel to kill other people and that we've accomplished something by doing that. And again, in the modern world, we're not always like brutally lynching them. Um, uh, It depends on the culture, but for, for us genteel Westerners, it's often by, by, by ostracizing them. By, by, by chasing them away, by silencing their voices. Even in a company that does a mass firing, there's this, if you've ever been in that situation where suddenly a large number of people have all just been sacked because somebody wants to make the bottom line look good, there's a strange, weird kind of Holocaust psychology that takes effect, which is they're gone, but we're here. Are alive. They're dead. Enjoying the conversation so far? Well, we wanted to take a break for a second to remind you that we've got a whole vault of incredible talks with other brilliant creative minds waiting to hit your ear holes. Here's a little sample from our episode with writer Tony Jaswinski, friend, friend of the show, Alex, right? Big time. Advocate. Advocate. That's the word. He's gotten us many guests over the our, our, our ensuing run, brought in a lot of people. He's like our big time guy. He's a big timer. You are a guy. big time guy. Jack Palance. Uh, uh, big film film lover. Huge. And uh, 
and turned us on to a lot of great uh, guests and other people that, that have come to share their love of film. So thank you again, Tony. Here's a little sample from Tony where he talks about the value of good critics and critique. Enjoy. If there's four people in the room and three people all love something, I feel like there has to be somebody who says, it's great, but here's the problem. You know, you needed to center for a second to sort of keep yep. people going in the right direction. And I think smart reviews and smart critics will never trash something. I mean, it's, it's hard to trash something unless it's complete shit. I mean, because there's a lot of people and I know people who go to see the movies don't, they, they, they can care or they don't care about who's below the line or who's like behind the camera. But a lot of people work their ass off to actually get good shots and make something work. And if it doesn't cut at the end of the day, it's not everybody's fault. But the fact is there's always something good about some movie where somebody tries. And like some of these filmmakers that you guys are going to have on the show and, and discuss, you know, through their wardrobe or whatever you want to call it, it's like there's always two movies that, okay, you know, they always rank worst to best kind of thing. And even some of the worst movies, there's something interesting in them. It's like somebody's trying for something. Enjoy this and many other great talks with amazing filmmakers about their journey into the heart of darkness, which is cinema. Thank you for joining us and back to the show. I know that you have a, a format you follow here, which is you talk about a B-roll movie. And my favorite is the uh, by Eric Romer, the great French film, uh, uh, sorry, New Wave film director. Um, and he made it in 1959. It was his first movie. It was a flop, by the way, but it became slowly over time a cult classic, which is what I think you often Like most of the best. Yeah. Like most of the best films. Yeah. It's, a, it's initially, uh, it's too too early, too too soon, too whatever. Yeah. It's a beautiful, it's, it's a beautiful movie and it, it, it tells the story of this um, expat living in Paris um, portrayed by... An American national who became French, uh, Jess Hahn, and he's not known in the States, but he's very well known by aficionados of 50s, 60s, and 70s movies in, in, in France. And he, he spoke he spoke perfect French, but still with an American accent. So he plays this guy, he's an expat living in uh, on the left bank in in Paris in the late fifties. And he's a, um, um, you know, he's kind of like sort of a trust fund kid. Um, uh, uh, it's a, a, a music composer. And, um, he believes that he's about to, um, inherit a small fortune and he's thrown this big party in anticipation of that at the beginning of the summer. And, um, and he's playing this new composition for all of his friends and they're all, you know, they're all being entertained at his expense. And in the middle of that, um, the, 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 someone arrives to announce that he's being evicted from his apartment. And, and, he, and he says to all of his friends, not to worry, I'm a Leo, and Leos are always lucky. So it's the beginning of, it's the beginning of summer, right? And Leo is mostly in the, the, the it's mostly expands the month of August. So August is coming. And August is when everybody leaves Paris. It's, it becomes a ghost town. Um, and uh, so he, it, it, hence the title, uh, uh, The Sign of the Lion. Uh, 
So uh, he's he's a Leo, and he's going to be lucky and not to worry. And then it turns out that the inheritance is passing to a cousin of his, not not him. And he's been evicted from his apartment, and his friends are now starting to leave town. And his best friend, a journalist, is is sent away on a on a big investigation that he does abroad. And so suddenly, our 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 hero um, is running out of money and has no place to live. So he puts all of his stuff into a suitcase and checks into a hotel, and, uh, and he's just trying to kind of like figure out what to do next. And he's got no visible means of support. And so now he's like um, pawning some stuff and selling some stuff and going to cheaper and cheaper hotels. And uh, and now he's out of money and he has no more clothes. And he finds that he can't even check into a hotel because if you have no suitcase, which he pawned, you can't check into a hotel. They won't take you in a hotel. Now Paris is getting hot and it's getting deserted. And he's trying to figure out what to do. He steals some food. And is beaten severely, which happens to you in Paris if you try to steal food, and um, particularly in those days. And then he finds out from a friend of his that there's this guy that will pay you money to be a courier for illegal materials. And so he treks way out to this gangster's house, and he finds out he's now ready to pursue a life of crime in order to stay fed. And he finds out that even the gangster who's ready to hire him to be a courier has gone on vacation because it's August and Paris is closed. And so he's trapped in this stone prison. And he manages to filch a can of sardines in one scene. And with his remaining clothes that he has on, he's trying to open the can of sardines. and He doesn't do it right. And he gets this enormous oil stain on his trousers. There's something about that moment, like he's lost that last connection to the dignity of being, you know, a bourgeois. And so now his shoe falls apart. He scuffs it on a piece of pavement uh, and breaks the, the, the sole and his, his, his shirt gets a rip in it when he's beaten by the grocer for trying to steal something. And so this, uh, this, this bum, um, and I believe it's appropriate to use that term because it's, you know, like all these, all the terms that we use for people that are, that are in his circumstances, they've all changed. You know what I mean? We don't talk about skid row or hobos anymore, but then you would just say he's a bum. So the French would call it un clochard, un clodo, but now they have a much more, you know, correct and dignified term for people that are, without a roof, any visible means of support, dependent upon charitable contributions. So this 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 bum named Toto um, uh, kind of takes pity on him and shows him how to sing to the crowds that are in, you know, like having a cafe, cafe floor and au deux magots right by the l'église Saint-Germain, you know, at the heart of Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Um, so now he's like this unwilling, entertainer of tourists who throw a few coins and that's his life and in his in his desperation and his last soaring of his remembered dignity he borrows a violin from someone who's there and plays that thing he had last composed at the very beginning of the movie his creation and 
his friend is back and his friend had tried to find him and had gone from hotel to hotel. And, uh, and actually one of the hotels said there was a letter that came for him. Do you want to give it to him? And so he, he has the letter and the letter says that that cousin who was to inherit the fortune had in fact passed away and now the fortune goes to him. So he hears this air on a violin and he chases him down. And at this point, he's our hero is now lying on the ground and he's pushing his hands against the stones of Paris, the hot August stones covered with the filth of Paris. And he's just there going like, I hate you. I hate the city. I hate these stones. I hate this filth. And the guy runs up to him and he goes, it's Jean-Francois. And he goes, what do you want? He's not even happy to see his old friend. He goes, you inherited the money. Your cousin died. And he goes, Gérit. I, I've inherited it, right? Gérit. Gérit. <laughs> and, he's, and he stands up and he screams this out. And then suddenly the sports car whips around the corner and he jumps in the back and he goes, come on with me. We're all going to party. And the sports car zooms away. And then Toto is there, and he's left Toto, the bum, and forgotten all about him. And Toto goes, what about me? And somebody who's there, a passerby, says, I'm sure you'll be able to find him somehow. And then the camera pans up to the Église Saint-Germain, and then goes beyond that and looks into the sky and shows you the constellation of Leo. And that's the end of the movie. <laughs> and... I loved that movie. You know, if you if you if you're a fan of Eric Romer, you know that he he often, he loves to meditate on how our lives hang by a thread, by a little tiny, you know, the, the Romans called mm-hmm. her the goddess Fortuna, you know, just by a random encounter, a small exchange, and suddenly our whole life can change on that one thing. And he often is drawn but to for the grace of God. Yeah, he portrays it and he makes you feel it and he doesn't he doesn't do anything but that. I, I, I consider him very much uh and the anthropologist who entertains you and, and and just kind of sweeps you away for two hours and makes you experience a different a different vision of all of our lives and it's done with like Eric Omer has the greatest empathy and uh, and a very quiet wit about the whole thing. I love the way the film just ends with the sign of Leo in the sky and and a reminder that you have no control ultimately. You, everything that you think you are is just a twist of fate. And uh, and me and then and then there's just like <laughs> the sad figure of Toto, like he was my friend, <laughs> and fortune has swept him away from him. Um, but anyway, I love that movie because I've actually had that experience in, in Paris of, of, uh, uh, of, uh, oops, I miscalculated how much money I have this week. Okay. It looks like I can't eat for the next two days. And I'm surrounded by like beautiful, wonderful friends who have like really cool and charming lives and everything is taken care of for them. And you're trying to dissimulate just how bad your circumstances are. Um, and I, and I, I don't live like that anymore, but when you're, when you're 20 years old, that's, that's, that's not so frightening. And, uh, 
and, and you can have some very rude experiences of like literally like if you keep on going like this you're going to end up starving um and or, or do like i did when i lived in london which is i would just eat at the happy hours that had free food <laughs> yeah well that's a, that's a, the, the things that you do at 20 <laughs> yeah i think no, if no. everybody looked yeah. back I think if everybody looked back at their lives, like in their twenties and they're lucky enough to have survived, I, I say this a lot. I'm like, I'm lucky I'm not dead third, you know, 30 times in my twenties. And you just I, don't even I realize totally it. agree. You just, you don't, you don't eat in this whole concept that you said about life hanging by a thread and the director in his works doing that. It's, uh, if you're lucky enough to get into your forties, you look back and you're like, God, I did some really stupid stuff that really could have killed me at any time. It can happen just like that. And, and fame and fortune, like you're saying, uh, happens the same way, you know, Fortuna. Yeah, the thing that you're, the thing about, I haven't, unfortunately, uh, I haven't been able to see that movie. And the thing I keep thinking about as you're so eloquently telling the story of it is that he actually left, the the man he left behind the the hobo the, the bum i like using hobo i still use it today like yeah, to yeah. That. it has a certain glamour um, yeah <laughs> yeah I, I there's something about which I, maybe a lot of the folks that you see don't deserve the moniker hobo because hobo i always see a hobo advancing you know just deciding to live the life of like on the train anyway um the man he left his friend was the last thing he had and then he had not like he literally he went from having nothing what he thought he had was nothing and then inheriting this money and leaving and feeling like he had everything and the guy that he was with literally his last thing that he had was his friend and now he has nothing it's just that that's something that i don't know if that's how it was but the way you described it just made me think how poignant and sad that is Yes, and yet, and yet that no, you don't. That that it is there is a poignance. Do you know? Do you know what the origin of the word poignance is? It I do is, not. <laughs> it's the same as you know the word pugnacious. He's a pugnacious man, always yes. ready for yeah. a fight. He's always got his fists clenched up in the air. Well, that's what it's a reference to. The um, it's from the, the Latin word for fist. Wow. Uh, yeah, so in French, it, it's point, P-O-I-N-G, point. And so uh, poignance means it, it, it strikes you in the chest with a fist. You know, you just like, ugh. And uh, yeah, that's what, that's what that left me with. It's, a, it's an incredible movie. I, I, I'm not sure it's even uh, it, uh, viewable right now in the States. Um, you can check. Yeah. His other works are on Criterion right now. Yes, uh, Criterion not, does like him quite a bit, but for some reason that one is not. You, I it's you, you could not find it we, in the states. You, you you stumped the band with that yeah. one. I, so I, we, I did, we, but we if, appreciate you go, it. if you go to YouTube and put in uh, "Sign of the Lion" Eric Romer or "Scene du Lion" Eric Romer, you can certainly see the last four minutes of the movie that I that I described for you here, and you can get the flavor of it and see for yourself that. Um, what it what it what it feels like um and if we're doing if we're doing a, a thing like that there's a movie i'd like to tell you about which is the movie that's never been made which is i would love it to see someone like the cohen brothers or maybe even tarantino but more likely the cohen brothers do 
Flannery O'Connor's short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Um, and it's got, it's got this incredible violence. It's got a serial killer. It's, it's, it's harsh and it is, uh, brilliant and makes like a fantastical anthropological point. If you guys want to hear the, the, the synopsis of it, there's a, absolutely, um, yeah, there's a really, um, you know, like a nasty old woman who's a grandmother, um, and, uh, and her son-in-law who is, uh, a shallow, uh, uh, a, a shallow failed man and, uh, and his nice Southern wife and their two kids and they're, they're, they're going to go on a, on a drive for a holiday through the countryside, Alabama or Georgia somewhere. And, uh, so it just he puts on his uh, his Hawaiian shirt to signal. This is you know this takes place in the fifties, right? And so that's his signal. He's he's now on holiday. He's wearing a Hawaiian shirt and with parrot sign, and uh, and he he's he's given his 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 meddlesome, annoying, self righteous mother in law the instructions to 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 is absolutely out of the question that she bring the cat on their trip. And so she smuggles the cat into a bag and she's in the back, back seat with her two children. And they, they, they stop at a, at a, at a diner, uh, you know, stop on the way. And, uh, the, the radio is playing, um, jingles and it intermixes it with a local news story, which is there's a serial killer named the kid who's with his henchmen and he's, he's, he's murdering people. Just, just random strangers, and um, and so the, the 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 grandmother says to the the attendants at the, the cafe, um, you know, what has our society come to? And uh, truly, a good man is hard to find. And um, they uh, and, and and you know and the, the it's that kind of stuff, right? So they're they're, they're driving along, and she goes, I. She's absolutely positive that if he'll turn on the next road, it'll be a shortcut. He's pretty positive it's not. And she she gets her way. And so they go off onto this road. It's like not a very good road. It's a dirt road. It's There's nothing around. They're just winding along. They feel lost. And they're driving along. And then she just wants to, to check on her beloved cat. And so she zips open the thing. And the cat, like a character on The Simpsons, springs out of the bag. And, and sinks his claws into the back of the neck of the, of the son-in-law's driving. And by God, the car goes right into the ditch. And now they're stuck because, because grandma brought this fucking cat on the trip. And um, so there's, they're like, they're, they're, they're in a place of incredible misery. Cars in a ditch, can't figure out how to get it out. There's no one for, they can see very far away and there's no one for miles anywhere. And that's, that's what she's brought this family to. And, but then they see in the distance, the dust trail of a car, which is approaching and it kind of slowly makes its way towards them. And then, um, out steps this, uh, thin man, looks kind of like a young Franz Kafka with, little narrow spectacles, circular spectacles. And he gets out and then he has these two large brutish men with him. 
and he's clearly their master. And uh, he looks at them and he goes, looks like you've got yourselves in a fine mess here. And um, so he, the, he's kind of having this, this, there's this vague menace in the air, but it's a seemingly a polite conversation. And so the, uh, the grandmother's trying to make conversation with him. And then she impulsively says, oh, my God, you're the kid. And then he continues wiping his spectacles and he says, now nah, I wish you, I really wish you hadn't said that, ma'am. And so the, the henchmen grab the son and the, the wife and the two children and they escort them to the adjacent woods nearby. And she's stuck with the kid. And then they hear the shots as the family is slaughtered. And she is overwhelmed with fear. And all she can think of saying to the kid is, Jesus will save you. But she can't say the words because she's so seized with fear. And so all that comes out of her mouth is, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And then something happens in her mind and she recovers her speech and she has a vision. And then she says to him, why you're my child. And then he pulls out his revolver and shoots her in the head and she collapses to the ground. And then the two henchmen come out of the woods and one of them is wearing the shirt with the parrots on it. And they say to him, well, we're having a lot of fun, aren't we? And the kid says, shut up. Ain't no fun in living this life. So they change the subject and one of them says, well, she was sure a talkative one, wasn't she? And the kid says, she'd have been a good woman had there been someone there to kill her every day of her life. <laughs> and that's the end of the story. Good Lord, that's dark. Yeah, and it sounds and it, it, it sounds really uh, brutal and horrible, right? And so um, Flannery O'Connor was known as you know like she, she she was a woman of faith, and someone wrote to her and said, uh, "Why did you write that story?" And I found this in the letters to, uh, of Flannery O'Connor, and and she said, "I believe that the grandma was given a vision in her last moment alive, and when she spoke it." It went into the mind of the kid and it planted like a seed and would later grow into a great crow-filled tree. And he would become a prophet. <laughs> and so if I was if I was gonna make a movie out of this, uh, like I think it would be a short, right? But I would I would love to have the final image of it just be a giant tree full of crows crowing that's the final shot <laughs> but uh who knows maybe we'll get made into a movie what do you guys think <laughs> i think it's dark man that's dark but i could see it well we'll wait a second but let's just speak to this have you guys seen uh the banshees of inishiran the recent uh film no that's on my list have, have you so it yeah it captures the the this irish sort of um 
existential uh, component pretty well. Like I came in thinking, oh, it's going to be a romp like in Bruges, you know, kind of this like nope. two-hander and it it is not. Yeah. It is very dark and very sad and um, there's poignancy and there's humor, but it was just like, oh, the Irish, I'm a, which I am I'm a, half. I, so. I, yeah, I'm of Irish descent. Um, and uh, I remember I would hear some of the stories about my Irish ancestors. Uh, and the, quite a few of them are about some kind of feud. And then the story would end with these words. Yes. And then it would end with the words, <laughs> and she never spoke to her again. Again, yeah, yes. You can, you can, I think that's where my Irish blood. Uh, I think that's where I get some of my, you know, just uh, grudge holding abilities. I think probably comes from there. <laughs> the best, not the best. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. The, be- yeah. the, the best, worst. Um, well, gosh, that, that's a that's a. I, I don't know, Richard. I don't know. That's the that's the dis- disappointing <laughs> part about film is that um, it it refuses to and in very um, it's like it will you know clearly they're celebrating this film. It's it's touted as a possible best uh, Oscar, et cetera. But it, the the industry itself is not geared for such higher-minded thinking. I, I mean, I said when I saw that it was made, I was like, well, this, I want to see this, and there's no way that uh, it would be made in America. I, there's just no way that an American studio or even, I don't even know if an independent would make that movie. And then well, I, that's why I you saw get it's the financed. art out of Europe because yeah. there's, yeah, because the, the governments finance their f- arts. I, I have to say, you know, this has been just really fantastic just uh, hearing your stories of advertising by the way in the book there's other stories about the california milk i don't is it called the liquid they have a funny name but the fluid processing right so the got milk milk people (laughs) coca-cola um yeah it's really chock full of great uh if you if you're curious about how it works if you're curious about maybe working in the business it really is was that what it's it's sort of it seems tonally aimed at maybe a younger person I, thinking about going into the field yes, I also it, say it's, I it it's inspirational I, too I, I i i read uh, a great book which i referenced in there when i was uh, new to advertising uh entitled uh don't tell my mother i work in an ad agency <laughs> she thinks i play the piano in a brothel and, <laughs> and I, I found that to actually be, it's a very funny title, but I actually found the stories in it to be hugely inspiring. And they, they lifted me um, and uh, set my sights very high. And that's an old book, number one. Number two, it's not even in English, never got translated. And so I just wanted to like write something, yeah, for a, for, for for someone who's uh, who's starting out in the field. And I've gotten quite a few really really touching fan letters from people who went like that. That is an amazing book, and it, it inspired me. And uh, you can't ask, I would also you can't say it's 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 inspir- no. it's inspirational, but it's also historical, and the and it also takes in your personal experience. 
and yeah, it's a bit of autobiography. It's it's a little bit of everything, but it's definitely very inspiring, very cool. The prayer, obviously. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think First just the story of San, just the story. Yeah, just the story of a San. You know, uh, no, I, but I think ever, on a macro, wouldn't you say that? The, I mean, not to not to get down that road, but like, wouldn't you say that, you know, if, if narrative is part of what your job is, I mean, isn't, isn't a human being's job to sort of find their own narrative That's right. and where they fit, you know, that's right. Like the, the, isn't that really the 100%. quest of, of self-actualization is, you know, you're, you're the hero of your own story. Like what is the story or what do you want it to be or, or, or heel. imagine it to be? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, and I've always, right. I've always liked that, uh, that figure in popular speech, you know, what's your story? I mean, that's, whoa, that's everything right there. Right. Well, thanks for letting me share mine. It was a real pleasure to talk with you guys. Yeah. It was great. The Thank book you. is Save Your Soul, Work in Advertising by Mr. Richard Wise. And then the subtitle is A Cheeky Proposal from America's Most Condemned Adman. I also would say we could cut this out. <laughs> I like the way it was written on the page. Uh, it, for some the reason, design. yeah. for some reason, Those excuse are- me. Oh, I'm sorry. What'd you say, Alex? There's a real, like, the, the, it's not just uh, words. I like I mean, the it's, flow. It's, it's a visual. It's artistic. Yeah. It's, there's something to it that makes it, you just keep consuming it. So I really, whoever, I don't know if that came from you, Richard, or if I would assume it did, but the way the book flows is not your typical, it, it's just a, as a complete package, it's really cool. So thank, thank you, you for sharing that and bringing it and exposing it. Thank um, you so much. You should pick thank it up. Your, thank you for exposing your package. Yes, yeah. thanks for exposing it. It's available on Amazon, and uh, if you follow the show, we'll have links out to where you can pick it up. Um, hard hard copy, uh, and we re- we highly recommend it. Alex and I both do. As you know, we're the, we're the purveyors of amazing content, if anybody knows that. <laughs> uh, Mr. Richard Wise, thanks again for joining us. Yes, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Ryan, Alex, thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to part two of our interview with Richard Wise on How I Got Greenlit. I'm Alex Collegian. And I'm Ryan Gibson. We'll catch you next time. And please, I know this sounds annoying. I know it takes time out of your day. But please subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. The ratings and reviews help the show become more discoverable and therefore help get the word out for the show. If you like what we're doing, we love what we're doing. Can't you hear it in our voices? How much we love this? Call to action means get up off your ass (laughs) and press a button that says me like you the show i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna bring by the way uh family and friends out there friends of the show well i'm gonna go to our overlords at next chapter and i'm gonna say to them for every i'm gonna promise every person who sends in a review of a picture of their review and their five-star rating we will send you a dollar (laughs) (laughs) what I'm just going to pitch that. It's a dollar. I mean, we're paying for time. One dollar. How long does it take you to hit that five-star review? Let's be honest here. Let's really, let's, let's get down to nuts and bolts. Let's be blunt. Thanks for joining us, folks. As always, I'm Ryan Gibson. I'm Alex Collegian. And we are How I Got Greenlit. Thanks, everybody. We mean it. Horn.
porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.